listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Y'all would open your Bibles. Um, I realize it's family worship, and... Um, and I'm in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. And I'm glad that I've got a very brief amount of time to deal with this uh, uh, challenging passage. Um, it's eschatological. Um, and so uh, let me just say a couple of words about that before I read Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse number 20. Number one, um, our eschatology in times is usually based on who got to us first. In other words, if you grew up in a church that taught a particular eschatological position, so if you say, man, I'm a, I'm a you know, a, a dispensational premillennialist, and I believe in the rapture and the seven-year tribulation and the Antichrist, that's because that's who got to you first. If you're an amillennialist, that's because that's who got to you first, generally, not always. Some of you are going to push back on that. I said generally, okay? So, so, so hold on. Hold on, just be, give, me, give me a second here. Um, secondly, um, usually if we have strong eschatological perspectives, we use our eschatology to interpret the text of Scripture. In other words, once I already decide that I'm an amillennialist or I'm a premillennialist or I'm a postmillennialist, then when I look at the text, I say that supports my eschatological position, and it may not, but I use my eschatological position as the lens to read Scripture, and we make it all fit together. Keep that in mind as we look at Daniel chapter 9. Thirdly, as we talk about eschatology, we sometimes villainize those who hold a different view than we do. We sometimes villainize those that hold a different view. In fact, I may not be as clear as you are on Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, uh, 24 to 27, and you may leave the church after today because you're just that uptight about your eschatology. Okay? And, 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 and that's okay. That's okay. I would rather reach lost people than fight with Christians. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank, where's Caleb? Th thank you, Caleb. Hallelujah. I'm going to Romania. I, I just, I just don't, I don't want to, I don't want to fight with the church over what the Bible says. Um, I believe it's, it's clear. I believe it's authoritative. I believe God's word is sure. I'm just not sure I understand all of it. Is that okay? I'm just not sure I understand all of it. I'm the barrier, not him. He's not deficient. I am. But please, if somebody disagrees with you, it doesn't mean they're a liberal. If somebody disagrees with you, it doesn't mean they're a heretic. I remember sitting in my preaching class. My first sermon I preached, I quoted Charles Atlas Spurgeon. His name's not Charles Atlas Spurgeon. Some of you don't know who Charles Atlas is, and some of you don't know who Charles Haddon Spurgeon is. But when you're sitting in a room full of erudite First-year freshman preachers, they know everything. And I quoted Charles Atlas Spurgeon. His name's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
Next time I preached, I got through preaching. I thought I had done a good job. This guy stands up in the back. I don't know what he's doing today, but he's probably not in ministry. That just makes me feel good to say that. Amen. And he said, you're a heretic. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm in first year Bible college and I'm already a heretic, you know. Um, when we talk about eschatology and if you disagree with somebody, would you please... Would you please not think that just because somebody has a different view than you do that they're heretical or that they don't believe or know God like you know God because their view is different. You may have a different view from somebody else because you're wrong. Right? Because you're wrong. So, so don't miss that. Don't miss that. Daniel chapter 9 beginning in verse number 20. Daniel has prayed, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Daniel has confessed his sin. He's confessed the sin of the people. He, he explains why they're in the mess that they're in, uh, 70 years of captivity. And now, beginning in verse 20, he gets an answer. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. One of the few times in the Bible we see angels flying. That's where we get the idea of angels flying from. He's moving rapidly at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's important. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The first thing I want you to see is this, that Daniel's prayer is answered. Daniel's prayer is answered. Just a few bullet points under Daniel's answered prayer. Give me five minutes to um, just give you an overview of this. Number one, Daniel was a great leader. I think Daniel was a great leader because he was... A man of prayer. I think he was a great leader because he was a man of humility. I think he was a great leader because he was broken and repentant and he identified with those who were broken. And I think he was a great leader because he pled for mercy because he knew that he desperately needed it. That's what great leaders do. I think Daniel was a great leader. Let me just, let me just uh, compare that to what we normally think of as great leaders even in the church. Most people think of leaders who think a lot of themselves. Most people think a lot of people who think a lot of themselves. Most people think a lot of people who think a lot of themselves. That's what entertainment is about. It's, it's generally a bunch of arrogant people who think a lot of themselves. That's what all the likes are, are about. That's generally what Facebook is about. We're out there. But I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram because I don't want to know what you're doing. I just, I just don't want to know what you're doing. I don't want to know what some of you think. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But sometimes I see folks putting stuff out there on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm like, they go to my church, Right? I just, I just don't want those thoughts enter in my mind, but I also am not on Facebook or Instagram because I just presume that nobody is interested in my life. <laughs> I'm not interested in my life. I can't. Somebody asked me yesterday, they said, how's your week been? I don't know how my week has been. I don't even remember my week. It was not significant. I had to go back and look at my calendar to remember what I did this past week other than going to my aunt's funeral who died. 
Daniel was a great leader. He was not a domineering leader. He was not a man who had all the answers. He was not a cocky, arrogant leader. He didn't think he was more important than anybody else. And yet, here this guy is going into the lion's den. Here this guy is just a great man of God, standing up for God against an entire nation. Secondly, um, um, the, the, in, in the answer to Daniel's prayer, we see that God is a glorious God. God is a glorious God. That's what it was all about. It was all about God. Thirdly, uh, Daniel's prayer was answered. What do we see from it? That the answer to Daniel's prayer was Jesus. It was connected to the evening sacrifice, which is connected to Exodus chapter 12, which is connected to Matthew chapter 27, which is when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, when Jesus was sacrificed. That's what the evening sacrifice is about. The answer to his prayer is Jesus. The answer to eschatology is Jesus. Finally, we see in Daniel's answered prayer, the greatest benefit of prayer is the assurance of God's love for you and me. Whenever you pray, listen, we're just trying to glean some things from these first uh, three verses here. When, whenever you are praying, make sure when you pray, you go and stand under the banner of his love for you. The greatest benefit of prayer. And that's what, that's what the, Gabriel says, for you are greatly loved. That is so beautiful. If when you pray, you are not sensing that you are greatly loved, I want to encourage you to stop your prayer immediately and soak in the reality of his love for you because we are told in Hebrews that we are to go boldly to the throne of grace. And I don't think we pray the way we should if we are not going to the throne of grace, knowing that we are welcomed there just as much as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be welcomed into the presence of holy, almighty God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and he lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He rose victorious over an enemy that we could not defeat so that we could come boldly to the throne of grace. And when God the Father would look at his son or God the Father would look at Mark Powell, I would be as welcome in the presence of God the Father as Jesus Christ the Son of God would be if I'm resting my hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So don't, don't miss that. We do not have to go into the presence of God if we are in Christ, believing that we've somehow got to earn our way or we're not accepted or we are not loved. Daniel here is greatly loved. God accepts you like he does his perfect son. Listen carefully. Freedom is not found in prayer's answer, but in the presence of a loving Father, and sometimes the answer to prayer is simply in just showing up to pray. Sometimes the answer to prayer is simply in just showing up to pray and to walk into the presence of the Father who loves us. Secondly, that's the prayer of Daniel answered. Secondly, the plan of God revealed beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, about the Jews and Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. There are six purpose statements there, three negative, 
three positive. Verse 5. 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out, what, what we see in verse 24 is this overview statement. He's like, here's 70 weeks. Here's what's going to happen in these 70 weeks. These six things are going to happen in these 70 weeks. Here's what we need to know about these 70 weeks. These, what's going to happen in these 70 weeks are six things that are ultimate things. They are things that are accomplished by the finished work of Jesus Christ. They are things that are accomplished by the finished work of Jesus Christ. They are ultimate things things. So, so um, verse 25, now he's going to break down the 70 weeks. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince shall be, uh, a prince shall be seven weeks. Then 62 weeks, that's 7 and 2, 62 is 69. It shall be built again with the squares and the moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood to the end. There shall be war, desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's the 70th week. So he gives us this overview in verse 24, then he breaks it down into three segments through the rest of the chapter here. And he said, for one half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed is poured out on the desolator. Now, um, just a, a word uh, about, about interpretation or about open and closed-handed issues. Here's, here's the closed-handed issue that I would put before you as it relates to this text. In other words, things that we are sure of and cannot compromise on. Here's the closed-handed issue. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, will succeed. That's what this is talking about. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, will succeed. We are closed-handed on that. The open-handed issues... What are they? Are these numbers literal or symbolic? How long is a year? Uh, is, a, is a year the Jewish year of 360 days or the lunar year of 365.25 days? We're open-handed on um, which decree Gabriel is talking about, and there were several if we had the time to get into them this morning. In other words, when does the prophecy start on these first uh, this first 49 years, the first seven weeks, it, each week represents, um, let's see, <laughs> there, there's seven weeks is 49 years, right? So each week represents uh, seven years. Is that right, Joe? I think so. Anyway, um, I'm trying to hurry. Um, what are we open-handed about? Um, we, we're open-handed about not being dogmatic, not trying to find things to argue about and separate with about other people in the body of Christ. We're, we, we want to be ready. We want to worship. We want to pray. So what is, what is this overview? This overview of verse 24 is the, the box. We've got a jigsaw puzzle here. And there is, uh, you go to the store, you buy a jigsaw puzzle. How many of you like jigsaw puzzles? Anybody like jigsaw puzzles? Everybody likes jigsaw puzzles. I'm surprised. I've never put a jigsaw puzzle together. I probably need to start. Um, jigsaw puzzle, you got a picture of what the puzzle's going to look like. You, you, take, you break the seal on it, you dump it out on the table, and you've got all the pieces of the puzzle. Verse 24 is a picture on the front of the box of the 
jigsaw puzzle. He's telling us these are 70 weeks of years. These are 490 years. If you want to understand it more um, in detail, what, it, what weeks of years means, you can go to Leviticus chapter 25, where they're told to work seven days and have a, 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 a Sabbath rest. They're to till the ground for six years and let the ground rest one year. And then after these these Sabbath intervals, these 49 years, you have this year of jubilee. So there's, there's six days of work, one day of rest, six, six years of using the land, one year of letting the land lie dormant. And then there are these 49 years that are put together. And through those 49 years, at the end of those 49 years, there is this year of jubilee when if anyone had to sell their land or if anyone was sold into slavery, these people are set free. The land is restored to them. And there is this great celebration where everything that may not have been right in those 49 years was now made right. It's, it's the picture of everything being made right. It's the picture of a great celebration. Don't miss that. And Leviticus chapter 25 verses 1 to 17 um, literally points that out. The point of the, the Sabbaths is this and all of the details related to that is it points to the good news of the gospel. Freedom is coming and bondage will end. The point of the captivity for Israel was this and we see it in Leviticus, but, but here's, here's the point. Israel failed for 490 years. Israel missed 70 Sabbath years. So they went into exile for 70 years. They needed to take a break to be with God. They needed to create space on their calendar and, and in their minds so that God could have access to their hearts. We in America in 2023 don't understand Sabbath Rest. In fact, you can get a lot more done if you skip rest. You can make more money if you skip rest. You can be more successful if you skip rest. You can be more popular. You can ex enjoy more pleasure if you skip rest. But we will miss Jesus in all of our restlessness. We need to stop and recharge and focus our attention on him. This passage is not so much about the calendar and dates as it is about Jesus Christ and his finished work and all that, that, all that his people will go through until they experience ultimate rest with him. So he, he explains it to us. Now notice these six things. I'll cover them quickly. In verse 24, he said, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. In other words, there's going to be an end to transgression. There will come a day when all rebellion will end. Secondly, to put an end to sin. Job references this. He's talking about putting sin in a bag and sealing the bag up so that sin will no longer impact or influence or be a part of our lives. And to atone for iniquity. Jesus Christ came and gave his life in our place to pay our sin debt so that we could be set free from sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness. This is what's going to happen ultimately. 
to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, everything that has ever been spoken and every promise that has ever been given is going to come to fulfillment. This is what this process that he's talking about is. God is bringing about this fulfillment to seal both vision and prophet. There's not going to be any doubt in the end that every word that God has ever said has come to pass. It is going to be sealed. Nobody's going to wonder. Nobody's going to be trying to figure it out. Nobody's going to be trying to add up days. Nobody's going to be doubting God and anything that his word has said to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. So he gives us this, this overview, but here are the ultimate outcomes that we understand from that. So then what is, what is the breakdown? Let me just give you... Um, a, a, a basic breakdown of these, these weeks of years. We've got 70 and 62 and 1. We've got 49, we've got um, 434, and we've got 7. 49 years, 434 years, if we take it literally, and 7 years. Um, here, here's what some people believe. Um, they believe that these the first the the first forty nine years or the seven the first seven weeks is from the decree of Cyrus up until Jerusalem has occupied the city, rebuilt the temple, and rebuilt the walls. That would take us all the way through probably if we're looking for markers to the end of the book of Malachi. All right, forty forty nine years, depending on who depending on when the start date was. So Cyrus sent out a decree. We've got this time period that's passing, and then we've got a period at the end of it. But then there's this 430-year period, 62 weeks of years that would begin in the intertestamental period after the book of Malachi is written. Some would say that that goes all the way up to uh, John the Baptist coming on the scene, 434 years. Some would say that those 434 years go up until the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Those things, for those who are looking at it literally, would say those things are in the past. The thing that's in question would be uh, then these, uh, the, the final week or these final seven years. Some would say that uh, the first half of those years occurred um, with the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ moving forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some would say that um, the, the, the last week is futuristic. Here's what I, I will tell you that, that I believe about the last week. I don't believe the last week has occurred yet. You say, what eschatological perspective is that? I really don't know. I just know that when I look at the wording in this text, it seems to indicate that this is a, a pretty gruesome time and that there is a world leader, there is going to be a time in the history of mankind where there's going to be a great battle and Jesus is ultimately going to win and his church will be victorious. So that's the overview of Daniel chapter 7. Um, there's a lot that could be said about it. There are a lot of views that different people have. There are a lot of things that could go into it. If you take the whole of Scripture, we don't have time to do that this morning. Let me, let me give you some thoughts as we uh, close this morning. Number one, like I've already said, these are not fighting words. I, I went to a Bible college, and man, I remember, I didn't, know, uh, I didn't know what predestination meant. I'm not sure I know what it means now, Okay. Um, but I heard guys arguing about it all the time, and I just listened. I didn't have a dog in the fight. I don't like to fight anyway. 
But I just heard them fighting all the time, and it became the haves and the have-nots, the people that know and the people that don't know, the smart guys and the, and the, the dumb guys, right? That's what we end up doing a lot of times. Um, I heard him talk about the King James Version and why, why the Textus Receptus was the, the superior text and the, and the Westcott and Hort text that was used to, to write the New American Standard, why it was a corrupt text. I don't know that any of them ever saw a Textus Receptus or a Westcott and Hort text. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. They just love to argue about it. And here's what I, I want to tell you that these words from Scripture about eschatology are not fighting words, and they shouldn't be for those of us who love Jesus and who love Scripture and who love the gospel and who want to reach the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They they should not be fighting words for us. They should be words of great hope. They should be words of great hope. They should be words of great hope because there is a good God with a good plan and he saved me, and he's included me in it. And whatever happens between now and the time that he comes back, whatever happens between now and the time that he comes back is not going to be heaven on earth. Can I tell you what most of us suffer from? We want heaven here and now. We want everything in our world to go the way we want it to go. We want... We want we want to have the perfect house. We want to have the perfect car. We don't want to ever have a flat tire. We don't want to ever have a problem. And, and here's what you and I need to understand, that heaven is not here and that heaven is not now and that heaven will not be here and it will not be now, but we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so until then, let us understand that there is this good God who has invited us into his good plan. And between now and the time that Jesus comes back, what this text of Scripture is telling us, and telling, even telling Israel in this text is that just because you're getting out of captivity and you're going back into the land and just because you're going to build the temple and just because you're going to have somewhere to worship and just because you're going to put up your walls and just because you're going to get back into commerce and just because things are going to start looking up for you, it doesn't mean this is heaven. We've got to stop thinking that heaven is here and now. It's not. And we've got to stop thinking that when things just don't go our way, that quite frankly we deserve for things to go our way because we don't. Heaven is not here now. These are not fighting words. Heaven is not here now. Thirdly, whatever Daniel is about, when you boil it down, it's about Jesus. The thing that Daniel is looking forward to in this text is the return of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't think that Daniel is telling these people to get out their boards, to get out their graphs, to get out their charts, to come up with all the different views, and then find a view that you like from all of the people that disagree on how these, all of these numbers and all these years crunch out and all of these things that are supposed to happen. I don't think he's telling us that even we can figure all of these things out in 2023, and maybe we can, but I don't think that's what he's trying to tell us. He's just saying, you're going to be going through some stuff, you're going to be going through some stuff, and the thing that you need to look forward to is Christ coming back. And that's what we need to to be doing in our life because there are all of these temptations that say, hey, relief is over here. Joy is over here. Pleasure is over here. 
Take the pressure off over here. Enjoy this over here. When Jesus is saying, no, it's going to be a grind and it's going to be challenging and it's, it's going to take a chunk out of our soul and out of our life, but always from the beginning to the end, keep Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. And that's what, that's what I believe Daniel is telling these people as we look forward to one who is going to come and make everything right. Finally, I want to challenge you this morning to leave here today resting in his love. That's good news. That's good news. We all want to be loved. I want my wife to love me. I want people to love me. I, I, I want to be loved. And that love is ultimately satisfied in Jesus Christ. I think that's such a, a fitting word for Gabriel to come and say, for you are greatly loved. And if we do not come to grips with the fact that we are loved by him, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to extract a love from others that only he can give us and we will never be satisfied. If I am not looking to Christ and 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 experiencing his love for me, I'm going to go to my wife and put demands on her that she was never created to meet for me in loving me. But when I accept who Christ is and what he's done for me, I am now free to move toward my wife and she is free to move toward me so that we can put the, the love of Christ on display in the way that we relate to one another because we're resting in the love that he has for us. So, so, as you leave here today, I want you to think about resting in his love for you. That is critical to so many things in our life. Secondly, as you leave here today, I want you to think about how you're going to live until Jesus comes back. And I want us to think about living a life of worship and service and sacrifice. How are you going to live until Jesus comes back? And I want you to think about... <laughs> um, a mom who walked into the living room on Christmas Day and said, this is just, this is exorbitant, right? I mean, this is crazy. Life is going to be different. Um, maybe, maybe you and I need to have a come to Jesus meeting like that this morning. Where we just look around and say, man, what am I living for? What am I living for? What am I living for? Am I living in light of the return of Jesus Christ? What am I doing with my life? So leave here secure in his love. Leave here determined to live a life of worship. Leave here to, to leave it all on the field until Jesus comes back to take us home. Every Sunday we participate in communion. We have juice that represents the blood of Christ. We have bread that represents the body of Christ. These are, this is a symbol of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in it, when we participate in it, we not only are proclaiming the value of his death, that we are resting in his death, but we're also looking forward to his return. And so as you come this morning, I would encourage you to confess your sin as Daniel did for himself and his people, I would encourage you to hear a loving father say, you are deeply loved, and if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven, 
If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I would encourage you to pray as you come and receive communion this morning, to cry out to God and say, God, help me understand how I should live in this world until you come back. I invite you to come this morning after I pray. Father, we thank you for, um, for these symbols that represent the gospel. I thank you for your word that is certainly clear before we get to it. And I pray this morning that you would help us, that you would challenge us. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to you, Lord Jesus. If there's someone here that's weighted down with sin, that feels hopeless, feels like they've wrecked their life, I pray that they would run to you. There is no hope. There is no other way of dealing with sin. There is no other place that life is found. Father, I pray for those of us that say we know you. I pray that uh, you would help us to, for those things that we think are heaven here on this earth and that we feel like we have to have, that we're pouring our lives into, that we're pouring our resources into, that we're pouring our time into. I pray for those things. I pray, Lord, that we think are going to give us pleasure. I pray that you would make them bitter to us. And I pray that our hearts would be enthralled with you, Father, with you, Jesus, with you, Spirit. That our hearts would be enthralled with you. And that we would lay ourselves down as living sacrifices. And we would say, Lord Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated to you and you alone for the rest of my days. And I pray that we would look forward to your return. I pray that we would hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to come this morning.